0: Good morning. If you would uh, bow with me in prayer before we open God's word together. Uh, Lord, we do thank you. We uh, as we just sang, uh, we are people in desperate need of your grace and we thank you that you give it to us in abundance. Uh, We do confess that we are sinful, broken people that desperately need you. Uh, We pray today that as we open your word, that your Holy Spirit would come and lead and guide and teach us in all truth. Uh, We can't do this without you. And so we just confess this morning. That we need you to be moving clearly in our hearts and our minds, illuminating uh, your life-giving word for us. We pray that you would do that this morning, that we would see you more clearly. That we would leave here seeing uh, more clearly your holiness, uh, your forgiveness. Uh, I pray that you would help us to see uh, how seriously uh, you take sin and what that means for us. But we would also see what you've done about it. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember uh, there was uh, probably in science class. You maybe have uh, read about this or heard about this. I I remember reading uh, maybe in ninth, 10th grade, the idea of of a frog and a boiling pot of water. You remember that uh, that old experiment or they talk about that. Uh, It it came to be I was reading I was kind of rereading about it this week and just seeing like. Uh, I think they said it was like late 1800s. scientists were trying to kind of bear out their their thoughts on this. But the idea basically this, if you haven't heard of it—is if you drop a frog in a boiling pot of water, it will fight like crazy to get out because of the incredible heat and how it will feel that. But that if you put a frog in a pot of water that's tepid water and then heat it a little bit over time, that'll finally just kind of relax, kind of lay back. Uh, get comfortable, and then he'll die because it'll end up boiling, but he'll never really know it. It'll just be this kind of nice, gradual. And, and it's kind of a sad thing, really, to think about, like uh, the, the picture there. But the way that we illustrate that or, or the way they, they use that or talk about that is, is the difference of small changes over a period of time that oftentimes we don't see it or we don't see it quite as clearly. And so it kind of sneaks up on you. You certainly see that all around in different ways. I read some statistics uh, this week on what we see on television today, uh, the, the things that are put in front of us and, and the things, uh, the, the kind of uh, evolution of that over time and the way the things that we don't bat an eye at today that just over time have greatly changed. You could put this in a whole lot of different ways. But I was thinking about the the frog in the boiling pot because we've been in the book of Genesis and we're going to continue in it this morning. Uh, we're going to look at some of the passages in Genesis 6 and 7 and 8 that Dennis just read for us a moment ago. And what we could say though as we get into Genesis is we saw creation and our purpose and how we're made Uh, To be in relationship with God. But then we saw a couple of weeks ago in Genesis 3, sin enters the world. Adam and Eve decide to define themselves and who they are by what they think rather than what God has said. And sin enters the world in Genesis 3. And then in Genesis 4 that Luke took us through last week, we see Cain and Abel and the first murder. And then we see in Genesis 6, all of a sudden we kind of see it speed up. But this has happened gradually over time. We see the pervasiveness of sin on the face of the earth. And in a lot of ways, we could summarize Genesis 3 through 11 as that picture. It's the growth of sin or the depths of sin. And you see it getting into everything. And it made me think about the frog in the boiling pot of water. Is that what we're seeing? It's growing and it's in everything. And we kind of get to this uh, really tough passage in a lot of ways in Genesis 6, 7 and 8 about Noah's Ark. Uh, Oftentimes we think of Noah's Ark as a children's story. Uh, Maybe you've read that to your kids. You've seen the books. There's lots of children's books of Noah's Ark. Uh, this is not really a children's story at all. Like, I mean, we, we put it that way and we look at it that way. And I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to teach what it tells in the scriptures to our children. We should. But the picture that's there is it's a very, very somber, serious story filled with some really tough passages, some very difficult things that are said. And think of what Dennis read to us just a second ago in chapter 17. And it says in verse 19, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the mountains under the whole earth were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep and all the flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was, was the breath of life died. It's a pretty sobering picture when you really stop and think about it, the picture that's here when you read that it's a sobering, sobering story. And I don't want us to gloss over the weight of Noah's Ark or, or kind of make it into a children's story of bringing animals two by two and the smiling snake that's often driven drawn in the. And, and the kids books and those kind of things. But there's some serious things that we need to look at. And so this is the way I want us to look at the flood this morning. And we're going to look at parts of Genesis six, seven and eight where we find that picture together. But this is the way I want us to look at it. First and foremost, the first thing is because who God is, sin must be dealt with. Because who God is, sin must be dealt with. We see that in this story. The second thing I want us to see is that salvation comes through suffering. God's salvation comes through suffering. And we'll talk about what that means and what it says here. And then lastly, just how do we see this today? How do we take why has God, uh, why did he do this? Why did he work in this way? And why has he preserved this story for us today? And how should we take it? And so let's just start at the beginning with because who God is, sin or evil must be dealt with. And so look with me, if you would, in Genesis six in verse five, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so right there, we're going to jump into just some pretty heavy, serious things. And there's a lot of things that it says there that are some difficult passages. When you hear God saying, I regretted that I made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart in verse six. One of the very first classes I took in seminary was Genesis to Joshua overview. And you start obviously in Genesis and you start working through it. and probably like the third or fourth day of lectures. We got to this. And I remember going to my seminary professor, Dr. McDaniel, and going, what does it mean that God regretted that he made man? How does that work? And asking these questions. And my professor, Dr. McDaniel, looked at me and he went, "Uh, well, that's what we call an anthropomorphism. And I went, oh, okay, yeah, great. And I walked off and I wrote down anthropomorphism. And I went home and I looked it up. I didn't have a clue what he was talking about, but I just... My pride was too great to go. I don't know what you're talking about. And so I went home and looked it up and what it just means. And I went back and then I went back acting like I knew what it meant (laughs) and asked them and talked to them about it. But what it means is we assign human characteristics to an infinite God, that God graciously, as he inspires his word, gives us these pictures of what God's like and how he does these things and how he moves. And so we assign human characteristics so that we can begin to see what God's like for an infinite created man to try to understand the ways of an infinitely holy God. And so God graciously uses these different words and talks about this. You know, we could ask the question here, does God have a heart like humans have a heart in the same way? Well, not exactly, but it tells us that it grieved him to his heart. It's using human language to assign to God so that we would kind of understand what's going on. And so he starts to tell us these things. And what becomes apparent as we start to look at this is the picture of the way that God sees sin on the face of the earth. It enters in Genesis three and then we see the growth of it in four and five. And you get to six and it has this statement about the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And it says uh, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Continually. And it's showing you the way God sees what's happening on the earth in our sinfulness. And you can read that statement and go, that's quite a statement. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Let's think about what that means. That everything they were doing was evil. And the way they were going about every intention of their heart. And that becomes a very difficult thing. But that's starting to show us a little bit what a holy, righteous God looks like when he looks down and he sees our sin. It's what we often refer to when we get into doctrine and we put things in categories. We talk about uh, the depravity of man that apart from God in our sin, when we've rebelled against him, man is totally depraved. Now, as I say that. Uh, it's a loaded statement to even talk about man's depravity and begin to. It's one of the most misunderstood doctrines. go, well, wait a second. I, I know people that are not believers that don't love Jesus, that do all sorts of good things. And I say, yeah, me too. I agree. I know a lot of people like that that do different things. But what this says and what this talks about in the doctrine we're talking about is the intentions of our heart. Right. That's what it says in, in verse Uh, five there that every intention of their hearts was only evil continually and so uh, put it this way when we start to think about this doctrine of total depravity and what that means is it does mean that people do good things all the time people who are far from God who don't care about God at all will do things to help and serve others and do all sorts of things and those are good things and that's great and we should encourage those things but the thing is we will do them out of the wrong heart motives I can go out today and help old lady across the street. And then I get done and I go, look at me. I'm such a good person. Look at what I did. And she goes, oh, you're so sweet. I go, oh, thanks. You know, and the whole time, that's why I was seeking to do it. The intentions of my heart were actually evil. They weren't trying to give glory to God and show what he's like and the things he's called us to. I've made it all about me. And that's the picture that's here. And that's what we mean when we begin to talk about total depravity. That apart from God's grace in our life, we will only do things for selfish motives. We will only do things to make it about us and me, uh, validating myself, getting pats on the back, all those sorts of things that creep in. And our heart is deceitfully wicked. Even as a Christian, as we come to faith and the Holy Spirit begins to move in us and we seek to glorify God, a lot of times our motives are mixed. We'll still go back to doing it for those. Or we'll go, I want to glorify God. And then as soon as somebody doesn't pat you on the back, you go, well, why didn't they pat me on the back? Did they not see what I was doing? Right? We, we quickly will slide into that. It's because our heart is deceitful. And that's the picture you begin to see form here, that their intentions of the hearts were evil continually. And God looks down and he sees it and he sees this so clearly because he is holy and righteous in every way. That's where you get verse 11, where it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. The outworking of removing God is now going to be violence. It's going to be harming one another. It's not putting one another in the light of created by God. It's His image bears, and we're seeking to glorify and love God and love other people. But now it becomes all about me. And so if you get in my way, then I'm just going to use violence to get back at you. And that's what you see over the face of the earth. And so God that looks down... And he sees that and he sees it and he looks at it. And what he comes to is it says in verse 13, God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Not a kid's story. This is a difficult, difficult passage. God looks at the evil of their hearts and he sees it and he looks over the face of the earth and he says, I'm going to destroy the earth. I'm going to destroy those on it. And you go, whoa. It's a serious, serious weight here to this passage. And you can kind of recoil in that and go, well, wait a second. That's not fair. or That doesn't seem right. Or why would he do it like that? Or why would he even say that? And what that does is it reveals in us that we don't understand the holiness of a righteous judge. That God is right to judge us in our sin as created beings in his creation, because he is God and we are not. He made everything. He holds us together, uh, creates us by the power of his word. He holds us together by the power of his word. He defines what reality is. He says, this works best when you center around me, you make it about me. And what the earth has done and what we have done has said, no, it doesn't. We've got it. And God is right when he says that. Now, that is very, very difficult for us to hear. What we see throughout Scripture is God would be right to do that at any moment, at any time, with any person. But because he's gracious, he oftentimes elects to pass over our sins in the moment, and he allows us to continue to draw breath, and it's completely by his grace. Jonathan Edwards preached a very famous sermon on that very thing, Sinner, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And basically what he said is God would be right at any moment to just, that's it, you're done. And that's the picture that you have here. But we often reject that. We don't like that idea. We don't like the idea that God is the one who judges. That justice belongs to him. People will say, I don't like a God like that. I want to leave that out altogether. I don't want to hear about a God who's wrathful. Wrath means God's righteous anger at sin. What we oftentimes miss when we talk about God's wrath, God's wrath is born out of his love. It would be unloving if God didn't care about things that were sin. He would be allowing us to have something that's far less than what we're made for. But because he loves us, his wrath rests on our sin. That's the picture that's there. His righteous anger. And so people will say that's terrible and I don't like that. I'm going to remove that altogether. I can't worship a God like that. In fact, that was the case of C.S. Lewis. If You know, C.S. Lewis became a Christian, famous apologist for the faith. But for a time, he was an atheist and as as a younger man. And it was because he had gone off to war and what he saw. He saw the atrocities and he saw the evil. And he said, if there's a God that would allow this to happen, I can't worship that God. And so I'm not going to be a Christian. I'm not going to believe in God anymore. And what C.S. Lewis came to as he came to faith is that he realized that when he took that out of the equation, he had no reason to be upset at the evil in the world. I want you to think about that. If you remove God from the equation and you take a naturalistic worldview, that is what you see and what you experience is all there is. You have no reason to be upset at violence and evil in the world. If you remove God from the equation, because that means that we've all gotten here by random chance through a series of very violent uh, sequences of, of events. If we evolved from nothing by accident through the process of the strong, eat the weak, survival of the fittest, there's absolutely no reason for us to be upset at violence and evil in the world at all. And C.S. Lewis said, the thing that made me so angry at God became the greatest thing that drove me to God. I realized I didn't have a reason for these intense feelings I had for justice if I removed God from the equation. And so this picture there, when we kind of shake our fists and go, I can't get with that, I don't believe that, I'm not going to do that, it's, it's because... Uh, We do that and we remove it and suddenly it's like uh, cutting off your nose to spite your face. You no longer have a reason to be upset. But when we see that God's justice is from him, that we're upset at those things because we're made in God's image, it turns us back that he is the just judge who judges sin. And he's allowed to do that. And so it pushes us to putting our trust in him in the midst of that. And so what we see here is that God looks down and he sees the sin and he says, I'm going to judge it. And I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to preserve just Noah in the midst of this. Says he sees Noah and he and his family. You know, the story of the ark, I'm going to destroy the earth, but I'm going to allow Noah to build an ark. We read it just a minute ago. And just he and his wife and his sons and their wives are the only ones that are going to go on. And they're going to collect these animals and they're the only ones that are going to be saved. And so you see this picture of a holy, righteous God who sees sin in such a way that he says the earth has been corrupted. Every intention of their hearts was only evil continually. And yet, as he brings his judgment, he decides in his grace that he will continue to save some. Noah and his family. By his grace, he will allow some. Now, here's the objection we have. That seems so harsh. But you need to understand that when we say that we do not see sin as the way God sees it. That's our problem. We don't see it as God sees it. We are not grieved by sin in the way that God is grieved by sin. And so when God says, and this takes us to the second point, that I'm going to allow some Noah and his family to go through, that he's saying, I'm going to save some. I'm going to bring salvation for my creation, but it's going to be through great suffering to himself. Salvation will only come through suffering. And I want you to see why I say that. Adam and Eve and then Cain after. God would have been completely right at the moment of their sin to say, that's it. You're done. They're gone. He would have been completely just to do so. He told them in the garden, if you eat from this tree, you will die. And he would have been just to come and have that happen in the moment. But by his grace, he allows them to continue on. And as he does that, and he allows them to continue on, you get what happens in six, six. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And what it tells us that putting God in human language is this is the way God sees sin. It says it grieved him to his heart. And the language that's there and the words that are there and what's used there is the same language that's used in 2 Samuel 19 when David finds out that his son Absalom has died. It grieved him to his heart. It's the same language that's used in Isaiah when the prophet talks about a a woman abandoning her husband, leaving him. And he says the picture there is his grieved to his heart to lose a spouse. And so I want you to think about what that means. That it tells us when God looks down and He sees the sinfulness of our hearts and what we do, that it grieves Him in the same way it grieves losing a child. Do you ever thought about that? I Had a friend a couple of years ago, he was an Acts twenty nine pastor, two year old son drowned in his backyard. I was supposed to meet with this guy two days after it happened. And so another friend called and said, hey, we're supposed to have this meeting on Monday. Jason can't make it because his son drowned today in his backyard. And I took that call and I was on the stairs in my house and I was helping my two-year-old Quinn down the stairs when I heard that. I went, okay. And I sat down and I wept. Oh, God. How? To lose your son in your own yard. The depth of the grief of what that feels like, and it wasn't even my son. I was just looking at my son and thinking about what it would be like. And then I read this, and it tells me that that's what God feels when He sees sin. He's grieved to His heart in the same way that we are grieved at the loss of a child. Whoa, the seriousness and the weight of sin. That we see here in this story. But not only do we see that, here's the thing that I want you to get. That when God decides that I'm going to allow Noah to get on this ark and continue to draw breath and to repopulate the earth, he is assuring that he is going to be grieved to his heart for thousands upon thousands of years for the millions upon millions of sin of each person that will come after God willingly says, "I'm going to suffer through that to bring redemption." That's at the heart of the story of the ark. So as we want to object and get upset, well how could He do that? and how can we look at that? He said, "I'm going to put a stop to it because I am so grieved by what's happening. But yet He chooses to allow them to go through. He chooses to allow Noah and his family to continue to go on. And so the judgment comes and the waters rise. Verse 20 of chapter 7, the waters prevailed above the mountains covering them 15 cubits deep. 22 feet of water over the tallest mountain. We can't even fathom that. The picture of what we're talking about. But I want you to think about the picture, if you can even try to imagine that, what that looks like, is a picture of God's wrath and how serious he is about sin. It's a picture of Noah's Ark. But yet God willingly says, I'm going to allow Noah to go through. I'm going to extend grace, allow the human race to continue to go on. And they do and he preserves them and he keeps them safe and it comes to rest as the waters finally subside and you get to the end of chapter 8 and it says Noah went out he and his sons and his wives with him this is 8 verses 18 right so the door's open and they walk out and it's now dry land and what's the first thing they do Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and he offered burnt offerings on the altar and then the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and he said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So I want you to get this. Uh, ben and I were talking about this the other day, that we often think of just two by two, the animals on the ark. But God gave him very specific instructions to bring more of the clean animals for sacrifices before they ever get on. And to bring seven birds and had to bring certain and all this. You know why? Because when he shut the door up and it was Noah and his family, it was Noah, his family and all the animals and man's sin. Noah and his family were still sinful. And God knew that. And he put them on the ark and he brought them through this. And then they come out and they make the sacrifice. And what God knows clearly in all this is that sin is now going to repopulate the earth. And he's still going to be grieved to his heart. He's still going to see this and feel this and go through it and yet he chooses to allow that to happen. He chooses to allow it so that he can bring redemption out of this suffering. And so you read this story, you get to the end and you go, well what do we take away from this? What do we learn from this? If God knew that Noah was going to be sinful and it was going to continue to be sin and it was going to continue to work this way, why did he do that? Just wipe Noah out with him. It's because God is not just perfect justice and wrath. He's also perfect mercy and love. And as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, even though God knew all of this in that moment, he looked at him and he said, I'm going to send one through your seed, Eve, who will crush the serpent's head. And it's going to come at great, great cost to me. But I'm choosing to do it. And so when he says to Noah, I'm going to, Preserve you, says Noah, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And God bestowed his grace upon Noah and he led him onto the ark. He was keeping his promise to Eve. I'm going to do what I promised to do. And so when we think, well, what do we take away from this? If he knew all that, what's he teaching us in this? First and foremost, I think he's teaching us the seriousness of sin. That we would begin to get a glimpse to see sin the way God sees it. That we would see how serious he looks at it. That it wounds him so deeply that it's like losing a child or losing a spouse. That's the picture that's there. And he shows us that to teach us what it looks like. He shows us that we all deserve judgment. We all are just like all those people that got swept under the flood. That is what we deserve but then he also shows us that we never escape this idea by kind of rounding up the bad people. If, if we ever start to slide into that, what would fix it is if we as the church huddled up and stayed together and it was just us. Well, guess what? The sin's already in here. It's not going to save us. You don't weed out certain people and then go, ah, that'll fix it. It doesn't work. And so you go, well, what is he teaching us? And what is he showing us? And so, yes, we deserve his judgment, but God is also gracious. And it's only by his grace and putting faith in his provided way that you will ever uh, escape judgment. It's the only way it will ever happen. Why don't you think about how Noah was saved? How was Noah saved? It says that there was this, this man, Noah. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I don't think it's an accident that it says in verse eight that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and then in verse nine it tells you he was a righteous man. He's because he found favor in the eyes of the Lord, because of God's grace in his life, that he was a righteous man. It's the only way it works. And so God graciously allows Noah to come onto this ark. He chooses him. He steps him aside. He tells him what's Noah's part. To cling to God in faith. I didn't talk about it. It's kind of a cliche. i got to say it now because I brought it up. But every story you've ever heard of Noah, they tell Noah to build an ark. God speaks to him, and he's in the middle of the desert, and he starts building the boat. And everybody laughs at him, right? And he says, But I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust God in the way that he's provided. I'm going to do what he's told me. And so he does. And he trusts God and he builds the ark and so he saved because God graciously allowed him and Noah clung to what God was saying by faith. I'm going to be obedient to you in faith and do exactly what you tell me because I don't know what else to do here. And so that's what he does. And so he saves Noah through the flood. And I want you to think about that picture, the image that we see. Judgment sweeps down from God as the rains come and people are swept under the flood of the rain. The water rises and the boat goes up and the same judgment that is crushing those that have not put their faith in God is bringing Noah to the surface. And God saves him through this judgment. And so you go, what in the world is God teaching us? Caesar is the only way that you escape his judgment by clinging to the vessel that he provides through faith. Friends, the story of Noah and the ark is all about Jesus. Thankfully. That's the picture that's here. The judgment comes that we all deserve, but God provides a way and you have to cling to him in faith. And so Noah does just that. You know, the story of Jonah is very similar. Remember the story of Jonah? Jonah. God calls Jonah to go do something, and he says, no, I'm not going to do it. And he h- runs the other way, and he gets on a boat, and he gets out in the water, and the giant storm comes. Judgment comes. He's disobedient. And Noah, uh, uh, Jonah realizes what's happening, and what does he say? We're all going to die if you guys don't throw me over the edge. And they all look at him and think he's crazy, and he says, no, 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 really, you're going to have to throw me over. And so they toss him out, and the storm stops, and he gets swallowed by a fish. Right? Another you know story. Jonah. Well, Jesus comes and he says, I'm like Jonah. The greater Jonah is now here. And the greater Jonah is now here because there's a greater storm coming and you're going to have to throw me out that I can be crushed under it so that you get saved. And Jesus says, I'm Jonah. Just like he was three days in the belly of a whale. I'm going to be three days in the grave, but then I'm coming back. And I'm going to bring judgment to. In God's perfect, righteous, holy wrath and his perfect love and mercy perfectly together in balance in Jesus. And so Jesus comes to do just that. Jesus sinking will be our salvation. And the only way that we make it through is by clinging in faith to what he's done on our behalf and nothing else. And that's the picture of the ark. In Genesis 6, we say it, it grieved God to his heart, like losing a child. And then Jesus comes and he loses his child. It's like grief to his heart. His heart's broken as he pours out his wrath on his one and only son. And they pierce his side, and the blood flows out, and the water comes out because he's emptied. <laughs> He's emptied himself on our behalf. And he takes the wrath that we deserve. And then he says, you get to go through based on what I've done for you. So how do we take that story? do anyway, we take it It's about Jesus. Thankfully, the seriousness of God's sin or, or of our sin to God. That he he has provided a way for us to be saved. But I also want you to think about what that means as we leave here today. What it cost Jesus to save us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer used to say that we, we had to fight against cheap grace. Oh, Jesus took it. We're good. Thankfully, we are good because Jesus took it. But when we say that flippantly, we don't understand the seriousness of sin and what it looks like to God. That it grieves him to his heart. Jesus has purchased every bit of our life and every bit of it. And so now we get to live our lives as a sacrifice of thanks back to him because of what he's done. And here's just the best part. When we do, you will find the greatest joy it'll be so much better because that's the way you were made to live in the first place. And so when I read the story of Noah's Ark and I look at it and go, eh, it's the seriousness of God's sin but it also when we focus on the seriousness of sin and the way God sees it God's wrath on our sin it magnifies the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done. Oh. Thanks be to God that God loves us enough that he would willingly take that on himself for our benefit. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious picture of the ark and what you've done. I thank you that you loved us enough to preserve even a remnant. So that you could bring redemption and salvation to your people by what you would do through for us through Jesus. And all we can say is thank you. I pray that you would help us see afresh today the depths of our sin, but also the clear uh, fullness of the mercy that you offer us in Jesus. We thank you that you remove that from us and we can now live anew in your life uh, in the truth of who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you. Thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus precious name. Amen.